This is a curious podcast. In our new series on architecture and criticism, we'll be exploring the tension between architecture and ecology through critical positions which launch each chapter. Welcome to Air Ecologies, a series by the Architectural Review. Founded in 1896, the AR has set the international architecture agenda in its pages for over 125 years. Instead of standalone interviews, AR Ecologies is set up to be episodic. You'll hear a mixture of voices weaving in and out of our conversations surrounding ecology. While architecture is the common thread that links everything together, our voices are out of orbit. They include scientists, engineers, artists, activists, writers, and more. We want to dwell in the in-between spaces of the topics we bring to the table, the gray areas that shift from anthropocentric to ecological, and with the help of our guests, hear stories we never considered before. Our first series will focus on trees in all stages of life, from seed to material, an audio counterpart to the AR's October issue. In the age of ecological emergency, trees must go beyond their limited architectural definitions. What happens when trees are discussed beyond their role as objects or material, but as a form of a spatial practice, as beings with networks, rights, connections? Trees aren't a simple solution to the problems humans have made. They hold their own agency. They are entangled with the world, and we with them, in ways that are too complex to grasp all at once but can reverberate through the perspectives we share. So, from the forests in British Columbia, to contested land in the Amazon, to the wood we use in our homes, our three chapters will travel, weaving their way through geographies and stories, all connected to trees. I'm your host, Sabrina Syed, editorial contributor and researcher at the AR. Timber is the fundamental link between trees and architecture. When trees are worth more dead than alive, we're turning to look at their identity in the economy that fuels this transformation. This episode is all about how we transform forests into timber, and ultimately how we can grow forests to operate in the same world that preserves and produces this essential building block of our existence. Timber especially mass timber, is seen to be one of the most ecologically sustainable building materials and an obvious alternative in construction. Every day, millions of trees are transformed from DIY jobs to large buildings aimed at minimizing their carbon footprints. In the past 12 months, demand for timber skyrocketed. The DIY boom during the pandemic causing mass shortages in lumber, especially in the global north, like North America and Europe. But it's not just this past year. Global exports of forest products, including sawn wood, pulp, paper, everything, grew by 68% between 2000 to 2019. That's around $244 billion in the past almost 20 years. There's an upwards pattern with our consumption of timber. The transformation of forests into timber of trees existing in a forest into trees being turned into a crop through timber plantations inform a historically powerful and complex global economy. 
When a virtuous material is used to replicate capitalist models, the result can exacerbate rather than counter the climate catastrophe. It is a strange paradox that we live in when you look at it through this lens. And I want to be really clear here and say that this is not a thread where we argue against using timber in the first place because it's important as a material to reduce our carbon emissions. But it's also important that as designers, we see the broader picture we're working in and the runaway train effect that can happen if wood is not managed carefully when it comes to turning forests into products. As soon as you clear cut a forest, you know, those trees go off into different products, but scientists have estimated that about 65% of that above ground portion of the ecosystem is immediately lost to the atmosphere because it's converted to short-term products. Suzanne Simard, forest ecologist, scientist, and author of her new book, Finding the Mother Tree, took me through a real-world example of exactly this, how the desire to decarbonize our energy sector, which is deeply important and should be done by every country, isn't as straightforward as it seems when you look at it through global trade. It can turn into a murky series of unfortunate events when run unchecked. This is a short story connecting the forests in Canada, where she works, to the UK. One of those solutions in the UK has been to convert energy system from fossil fuels to alternatives. And so one of that is through bioproducts. And so bioproducts includes things like, you know, burning biomass. And so there's a market has been developed in the UK that is fed by British Columbia, Alberta, you know, Canadian forests, where they're actually taking fiber from our forests and converting them to wood pellets and shipping them off to the UK to burn a wood stove so that you can get off fossil fuels. From 2022, wood burning stoves sold in the UK must meet these eco-design standards by law. Hence the new market for wood pellets, which substitute coal. Sounds pretty solid, right? But speak to a scientist and cracks emerge when the math, in this case, the full carbon analysis, balancing out what energy and emissions are gained and lost, gets done. When people do the full carbon analysis and an energy analysis, it doesn't make any sense. We're not just taking extra fiber from clear cuts. We're actually, you know, companies are also going into, you know, ecosystems that are full of carbon in soils, maybe a bog ecosystem. They actually are literally going in and planning to harvest boreal forests that where the trees don't grow very tall, but below ground, there's mm. this rich, rich carbon so storage. And so converting those to wood pellets and then sending them to the UK so you can get off fossil fuels, while those soils at the same time as we're clearing the forest start to mineralize and the CO2 in the soil, which is a huge sink, ends up going up to the atmosphere. And so this is actually going to accelerate um, this practice that doesn't when you add up all the numbers, it makes no sense, right? One of the biggest misconceptions about using trees and forests is the lack of regard for soil that holds vast stores of carbon. Ironically, the peatlands Suzanne describes in Canada that are being extracted from also exist in the UK and are known to store 20 times more carbon than in the entirety of the UK's forest biomass. So importing it from another country to fulfill a new eco-design standard sounds as backwards as it looks. We have to do the math, right? Yeah. And, and we haven't done, we haven't been disciplined enough internationally to do the proper math or scientists are doing it, but the industry in the meantime is getting going. We're better off to continue burning fossil fuels in the UK than taking the boreal forests of Canada, turning them into wood pellets, shipping them to the UK and burning them. 
This runaway train effect can risk undermining the planet's natural carbon reserves we're looking to protect in another part of the world. The transformation of forests to forest products, especially in architecture, is one of the most complex processes in the world, bridging the non-human with the human through materials. Ecological justice is, especially in the context of materials, taking into account the biggest possible picture of the implications of any material use in terms of time and geography. Aaron Patalik is an architectural historian at the University of Virginia, whose work revolves around ideas of what wood is or should be, and the history of how forests are used and considered in architectural frameworks. I came from practice and, and, and was really, you know, invested in using renewable or rapidly renewable materials. But the idea of what that has even meant through time didn't really sink in until I started to dig into the history of how we've kind of valued and depicted forests as a profession. Uh, maybe one way to talk about it is a kind of long history of ideas about renewable materials, because a lot of those emerged in wood, but they extend to many of the materials that we use now. A lot of them rely on constructions of the nature that they come from or support. When we're talking about timber, we often stay in the present, especially now. But how has our perception of timber evolved? And how does it inform the way we build and grow trees? One way of documenting this in architecture that Aaron does is looking at ads from the 20th century, especially ones in America, sort of like a Mad Men-esque investigation into how forestry companies chose to market timber. One of my favorite ones actually is from 1950. It's for Weyerhaeuser Timber Company, and it shows this scene of a kind of rolling mountain, looks very much like the Pacific Northwest, but all of the trees are young and they're all evenly aged and evenly spaced. And the trees are kind of surrounding this rock outcropping and on the rock outcropping is this family of raccoons kind of clustered together and also looking off into the distance. And one of the raccoons is swiping at a dragonfly and as his paw swipes, it points at a clear cut patch in the far distance of this productively managed forest. And so the argument is so essential and powerful, which is that this is still a landscape that still supports the kind of wild nature that we value as a nation, but yet it's also very intensively designed and managed to produce the things that you need. Opposite that raccoon tableau <laughs> uh, are all of the things that come from these woods which are, you know, sheets and beams and trusses and all different forms of timber and packaging. You know, packaging was a huge use of wood and still is. So it, it is this like we, we're working with this, this wild nature in a kind of co-productive and, and reciprocal way in order to take what we need without taking everything. These historical ads are important to the story in understanding timber in contemporary times, because they capture a quality that is intangible but powerful. They're all about nuance. Timber and all forest products are presented as materials that act like a magic bullet, a straightforward solution by the fact that it is inherently perceived as a virtuous material. 
when economically and historically, the story is far more complex. Understanding the terms and how we see timber as virtuous is critical to better understanding its place in architecture today. They've been really informative and really interesting because you see the kind of nuances of the rhetoric used to convince architects that wood is kind of both the appropriate building material to their technological and aesthetic moment, but also the kind of ecologically appropriate choice um, given the state of of forests. The overarching narrative would be this sort of shift from a mindset of inexhaustibility and plenitude to an increasing interest in conserving certain forests, the kind of primeval or virgin forests, um, at the expense of harvesting others. Uh, And so that's a shift kind of from an extractive mining mentality, the kind of timber mining was a, a kind of phrase that came up a lot in the 1920s and 30s versus timber cropping. So treating timber as a renewable resource and becoming comfortable with lumber that was actually um, had been grown in the lifetimes of those consuming it, which meant that it was smaller pieces of wood, faster growing typically, and had been uh, had come from a managed forest. This idea of a managed forest, of delineating lumber from trees, is something I want to come back to because there's so much to be said about it, especially when it comes to this idea of growing timber in a way that's also ecological. But there's another point Aaron picks up on towards the end of this thread, of growing smaller trees and smaller pieces of wood. That of scale. Historically, timber has always seen to be a very domestic material. Building with timber already has this kind of toehold in acceptability because, you know, humans have been building with timber for millennia. And there's a a kind of sense that it's deeply appropriate to domestic scale construction because we understand the life cycle of that, that scale or that type of construction to be a little bit quicker. Mass timber, also known as engineered timber, is an umbrella term that describes a range of wood products, like glam beams and the more popular nowadays cross-laminated timber. It basically scales up what we can build with. So instead of steel or concrete, primary load-bearing structures are made out of solid or engineered wood. And that's what we call a mass timber building. Being able to build larger structures with mass timber, like skyscrapers and stadiums, means that bigger chunks of our cities could emit less carbon through their construction. France is a great example of this, going into policy, where construction of all new public buildings by the state have to be composed of at least 50% timber or bio-based materials by 2022. So can mass timber be used in a monumental way? Mass timber proposes use at a monumental scale, even as it is obviously participant in a much more rapid cycle of obsolescence. We think of monumental scale architecture as kind of fundamentally mineral. I think that's that's one of the hurdles in terms of public acceptance that mass timber is is meeting because it's you know we've never you know you could say most cultures have never had a an issue of building with timber and lumber it's automatically kind of been part of some some sort of like deep cultural acceptance and knowledge but when you're shifting scale like this it is proposing something for which we don't have any existing reference points or we don't have many 
And so if we had, you know, a lot of examples of massive timber architecture from antiquity that were kind of ready or readily available to the popular imagination, I think the safety anxieties would be a lot less intense. How does our perception of timber that we know is very elastic change in terms of its trajectory for architects, but also for people viewing the industry from the outside? It's been very difficult within the timber industry over the last few years. A huge, on the one hand, a huge drive to try to use timber as the sort of the first choice of material if you want to create a sustainable building. But then on the other hand, there are many sort of challenges around regulation in terms of fire, acoustics, water damage while projects are on site and so on. That voice explaining the uptake in timber industry and its challenges is Maria Smith. After becoming an architect in the UK and frustrated with the limitations they found in terms of tackling the climate crisis in practice, they decided to pursue engineering at London's Open University. I didn't have the knowledge and the skills to really delve deeply into, into the stuff of buildings that I think makes a real difference in terms of you know things like tackling the climate emergency. I, I wanted that knowledge and I felt locked out of it. So I basically found out if you want to do this, you have to start from the beginning. You have to do your three full years to get an engineering degree. But by that point, I felt like, oh, I guess I'm committed now. So I did it. And, it, you know, it was it was brilliant. It was, it was so intense. But the Open University is amazing. And I'm so proud to be a graduate of the Open University. I think it's an incredible institution that just like opens up education in a different way. Maria is now head of sustainability at Bureau Happold and currently pursuing multiple urban projects that revolve around using timber. One of them is a design for a model timber building that seeks to confront the material head-on in its entirety and demonstrate how it can be a reliable material when used throughout construction. It's working out all of the details, it's working out the structural system, it's making sure that there's a template there that can then be applied with confidence. So the idea is that, yeah, that, you know, we can, we can demonstrate that this is technically possible and that these technically possible things are also meeting regulations and so on. When it comes to making a natural material work in architecture, regulations are often the biggest obstacle to overcome. There are a lot of concerns around fire safety. Obviously, fire safety is absolutely something to be taken incredibly seriously, but it also is technically resolvable. You can absolutely create fire-safe timber buildings. Absolutely can do that. The other concerns are around acoustics, so sort of acoustic separation. So when you're creating buildings out of you know, concrete, for example, the mass of that concrete is helping you create sort of um, acoustic separation between different floors, spaces and so on. And so when you have timber construction, you need to find other ways to do that, which is, again, completely possible. But we just want to demonstrate the ways in which you can do that. That yes, this is a concern, but also there are solutions. The other thing is, you know, for example, around water. And because obviously when you're building a timber building, there is a time when that timber is exposed to the elements. And so you have to just design and factor those things in into the design. It's all solvable. But we just need to demonstrate that this is how it's solvable. And there are loads and loads of case studies, you know, that have demonstrated this. But with the, with the model building idea, the idea is just to put all of these things in one clear kind of template that could be reconfigured and adapted to many, many different scenarios but show that this thing, this is possible. So hesitations about mass timber construction as something that is unstable, unviable, or unreliable have been debunked time and time again 
not only through templates like the one Maria's team have developed, but through built projects. But in order to transition to it confidently, they explained two key factors that need to work in tandem to make it happen. The potential of replicating ideas over and over again until they can proliferate, and the broader policy changes that need to happen in order to achieve carbon targets that governments promise to reach. The, the big problem, I think, is it's a question around scale and replicability. It's easy to read Braiding Sweetgrass and think, wow, this is amazing. Of course, this changes everything. But then you go to your desk on Monday morning, and while your mindset has shifted a little bit, the amount that you can actually change your practice is quite limited by the framework and the economy and the sort of systems that we're set within. And then, you know, you, you find yourself then just specifying another steel beam. It's like, mm, this doesn't feel right. This isn't quite. <laughs> and so the, the journey that we have to take to communicate and to figure out how to, how to incorporate all of these different technologies is that's the big challenge. You know, more broadly, we as an industry need to like be working together to show our capability, to reinforce our capability to clients as a whole. Um, but the other thing that I think is is helping move things is that many, many clients are creating very ambitious commitments. And in order to meet those commitments, we need to make use of materials and technologies such as timber in order for them to achieve those. Making use of timber is one of the key ways that we can reduce the embodied carbon and whole life carbon of projects. You're not going to be able to achieve a lot of those, um, a lot of those targets that they've set. And I mean, Lendlease, for example, as well, you know, have set insanely, very, very fantastically ambitious targets of absolute zero by 2040. There's no way you're going to achieve that without changing the way that we build. So we have to re-question and reformulate the sort of our design practices. And mass timber is an absolutely critical part of that shift. When a natural material needs to behave in ways against what it's prone to do in nature, what it's prone to do ecologically, like absorb water, for example, this transition is something that makes the non-human human. It makes something natural become inherently anthropocentric. And it's happening economically, chemically, and through all the intangible ways in how we perceive wood as wood. What I'm really interested in is how the ideas of beauty and architecture and sort of design justification kind of methods, systems, what it means to be rigorous, those things have to shift too. I wish architects knew that you didn't always have to specify the best, that allowing irregularity or defects or, you know, visual or aesthetic defects was a kind of wonderful way to incorporate the diverse lives of trees in a forest into the kind of final product. The transformation from tree to timber inform what we see as acceptable when it comes to our role in maintaining it. Because all the ways that we've improved timber production has allowed us to create regularity and predictability in a material that is implicitly irregular. I asked Aaron about how we perceive treated wood often used across timber buildings, including mass timber buildings. These are all considered virtuous materials, at least more than concrete, cement, or steel in terms of their embodied carbon. In the world of particle board, plywood, OSB, all the elements that come essentially from the same forest that turn into these forest products, 
to what extent are these still wood? And as a result, are they still virtuous? When your OSB siding bulges or becomes, you know, waterlogged or full of mildew, when your particle board shelves start to delaminate or bend, and also when your pressure-treated deck starts to look too old, there's very little that you're invited to do to help it get back to how it was. Because of how thoroughly transformed those woods are, they kind of dissuade participation, you could say. They kind of keep one at a distance. You're not sure if you should sand your pressure-treated deck because you can't, you're not sure if the wood contains something um, that would then be released in the sawdust that might, might make, you, make you sick. These woods that have been kind of chemically and physically transformed to the degree that we no longer really know how to interact with them, how to fix them, how to take care of them, on those terms, which are really important in terms of living with a material, on those terms, they're really not wet anymore. You know, if we're not sure if sanding them will make us sick, if we don't know how to patch it or glue it, or, you know, if it's sort of just fraying and decomposing right in front of us, on many of the fundamental ways that have made experientially wood in terms of our ability to kind of work with it and live with it and fix it and repair it, those have kind of categorically changed. So envisioning a built environment, lead and filled, by wood, by timber, also means acknowledging the full spectrum of materials that emerge out of it, this intention to be sustainable, fueled by an economy built by forests. Acknowledging what we are prepared to accept, economically, structurally, but also aesthetically and culturally, is a multi-layered conversation when it comes to using timber, and we're only just scratching the surface of it. These are the conversations that often don't make press releases, or the goals set in summits, or the details that get skipped out in timber when it's promoted as our material of choice in architecture, and deservedly so, to design ecologically. I always come back to this thought Aaron shared on mass timber that perfectly sums it up. I, I think mass timber is great, just to be perfectly clear. Like, I'm really excited about it, but I think we need to be more reflective and think more carefully about how we define what is ethical building and what is a kind of environmentally virtuous building material. Not to claim that mass timber is not, but to think about the terms on which we claim that it is. Creating a built environment is very much a team sport. It involves so many different actors. There's going to have to be little shifts from all sides. And I, I'm optimistic. I think that will happen. I think, you know, projects like the, the new model building is, is, is one like good step, but that has to be met with the insurers thinking again, and it has to be met with the clients thinking again. But I think there are so many drivers and the awareness generally about the climate and biodiversity emergencies mean that the context is there. It's just that like working together, that egotistical thinking more ecologically that rather than sort of you coming into a system and thinking, oh, what can I get out of this? It's like, how can I fit into this? That shift in mentality that is like slowly, slowly happening means that we will be looking for different solutions. I want to continue by going back to where we began. By this, I mean completing our timber episode by going back to the origin of our series, and that's planting trees. Looking at the seed that makes the material. Looking to how the very forests that generate our supply of mass timber are considered. 
I think if we were able to talk more frankly and less romantically about the function of forests in our societies and not just our kind of ancient romantic visions of lush greenery, but actually productive, crop-like, heavily managed forests and be more conscious about the fact that these take up now massive areas of our globe and need to be treated as landscapes that should be managed in the context of kind of both fair labor and hopefully some type of ecological richness. That, that would really help the kind of mystique surrounding mass timber. When you look at a lot of the literature of mass timber, it doesn't really show you the types of forests that that material actually comes from. It shows you like national parks. The forests that we get to save, basically, by using this wood that's produced in a much more regular manner. There's a clear separation between the forests chosen as the ones we get to save, and the forests that we plant specifically to supply our timber economy. They're both two roads to operating ecologically in architecture. And I think it will be refreshing to talk about plantation forests, the ones that we plant, for the timber that we need, as something besides a dirty secret, or as something that's totally separate to saving the world's biodiversity and sustaining it. The thing that's amazing about mass timber is how omnivorous it is in terms of the material that you can use to fabricate it with. Kind of invasive species, if you get pest killed trees quickly enough, um, my understanding is that you can incorporate those. And so I think in the same way that material advertising directed at architects in the 20s uh, imagined that they needed to know kind of fundamentals of wood species properties and the kind of ecological implications of using one species over another. I think that would be really nice to know now, the kind of more nuanced, more developed, more honest accounting of the landscapes that produce these materials so that we could take account of them as something that is covering increasingly large portions of the globe or something that should be a, a landscape that should be held accountable to the kind of ecological hype surrounding the material that it produces. Throughout this series, we've spoken about trees and forests across different lenses. Forests as living networks that operate almost like a giant brain. Trees as spatial agents, the power and politics of land that forests rest on and the human lives that are at stake. Forests as heritage, or as rejections of colonial views on architecture. We've also looked at timber in a broader spectrum as a material, as part of a capitalist economy, as a product of our own perceptions on what makes a natural material virtuous. One of the last big questions connecting the gap between timber and forests remains to be asked. What can forests teach us about growing timber ecologically. One of the reasons I was so excited when you told me about this podcast and focusing on forests is, yes, we need to incorporate timber into construction and the timber technologies into our construction and built environment industry. But also, we need to learn from forests. Forests know what they're doing, right? Forests are an amazing ecosystem, network, ways of creating like balance between different elements of an ecosystem. People have always been part of forests and we've we've been, you know, working with forests forever. The Aboriginal people of Canada, for example, burned the undergrowth around their communities 
so that they would have, you know, there wouldn't be so much risk of fire. And so that working with the forest, we have a long, long, long history of it. And, and, you know, logging is, is just, an, it's a different form, but it's another form of management. You know, management is also a term that's not used in Aboriginal languages. It's more <laughs> work, working with nature. Um, so management is very much a Western construct. We need to not only sort of take raw material out of forests and incorporate it into our systems. We need to actually work with forests and have a, you know, I don't know, is it too much to say like a genuine knowledge exchange with forests to understand how can we then, you know, how can we create habitats for humans and non-humans alike that are, you know, genuinely sustainable, genuinely working within planetary boundaries and ecosystems and so on. And, and forests know how to do that. It's, they're both a resource, but they're also a huge sort of knowledge resource as well. And we have to sort of humbly and respectfully and study them and understand them. The last bit of knowledge exchange I want to share goes back to bridging our conversations on ecology with science. It's an ongoing project of Suzanne's, whose work revolves around how trees connect with each other, and what she calls her biggest and most complex project to date. When academics were not convinced that forests had networks at the scale Suzanne had been researching, she turned towards a very architectural tool, that of maps, in a Douglas fir forest prized for its timber. We need to actually map what these networks look like in a forest so we can show people. And so I got a graduate student, Kevin Byler, um, and he spent five years of his life making maps of what these networks look like in a Douglas fir forest to try to use structure of that forest, which was highly complex and stratified in age and size, to infer from that process, processes of what do these networks mean. But we found every tree is connected to every other tree through various avenues. And what emerged from the map was that the, the old trees, the big old trees, were the most highly connected. In this map, this biological master plan as it were, these older trees act as hubs. So they're like central points. They have huge root systems, many points of contact, huge crowns with photosynthesis. And so they connect much more frequently with other trees than a smaller tree would because just virtue of physics alone. Suzanne started asking, what do these old trees do in our forests? Apart from being an enormous carbon sink, she noticed that younger trees would happily regenerate under the canopies of these older trees instead of being artificially planted like in a plantation almost like they were plugging into an older-than-us energy supply of knowledge within the networks of existing trees. And so I started doing a bunch of experiments with my students of having, you know, putting seed out, and we would do these experiments where they were allowed to connect with the old trees and not connect with the old trees. Eventually, we also looked at, you know, seedlings that were, were the relatives of the old trees versus strangers of the old trees. And we found that, you know, that the regeneration, the survival of those seedlings and the growth depended, it was interdependent with their ability to connect with the old trees. And that these trees could recognize and favor which ones were their own offspring, their own kin. And that led, led us to calling these mother trees, which is really a colloquial name because these trees actually have mothers and fathers in them. But I picked that name because it evokes in us an understanding immediately. And I've gotten a lot of flack for that name in the scientific world. But, but I think it's been important for an understanding among, among people because we all know what mothering is, what nurturing is, that this is an essential collaborative part of nature. So that's, that's where the origin of that term mother tree is. That's what they are. They're just the biggest, oldest trees in the forest that connect 
<laughs> they're the connectors. They're the nucleus of the forest. Mother trees, the oldest, largest trees in our forests, may be the key in managing a forest to both thrive and potentially grow trees for our timber. That is deeply ecological. Suzanne calls it the Mother Tree Project, and this heartbeat of knowledge exchange may answer the question on how forests can actually coexist with our need for timber, rather than be considered separate entities. I started it about in 2015. I was 55 years old at the time. So I'm, you know, near the end, getting near the end of my career. Why would I start a big project like that now? But it really, it was a natural progression. I wanted to take my my basic research on connection in forests and make an application to how we would actually treat our forests in the future, how to foster resilient forests as climate changes. That was the objective of the project. It's a 900 kilometer climate gradient. So it's an area that's like the size of Sweden. We have nine forests replicated three times each. So 27 forests across nine climatic regions with the idea that in hot, dry areas that uh, compared to the wet, cool areas at the other end of our gradient, that as climate changes, those wetter forests will start to become and look like the drier ones. And then we can make intelligent decisions and see what to do. And also we're using modeling at the same time to project into the future. So we're doing a full court press on this. Within those climate gradients, we're, we're saving or leaving, we're, we're doing some harvesting and comparing clear cutting with leaving mother trees in different patterns and different amounts, leaving clumps of trees in small patches and then larger patches and comparing them to intact forests and looking at the effects of these on on carbon budgets, on biodiversity and on resilience or regenerative capacity of the forest and then a whole suite of other things associated with those. The velocity of climate change is about a thousand times faster than the speed at which trees can migrate or adapt. So that means trees are going to keep dying unless we intervene. I'm recording this off the back of the COP26 Global Climate Summit happening in Glasgow. And just recently, world leaders pledged to end global deforestation by 2030. The first major deal agreed out of this event. Suzanne believes our relationship to managing forests as they stand can change for the better. And interestingly, the trees that she works with, Douglas fir, are a species that not only benefit from this experiment, but also fuel our timber economy in architecture. That's why this project, which has its roots in science, connects to timber, connects to architecture, connects to everything. But what we can do as humans is we can move trees, we can move genotypes. We can, like for Douglas fir, for example, it occurs from Mexico up to the middle of British Columbia. It's a huge gradient, climatic gradient. And so we can move these local populations to cooler areas that will become warmer in the future so that they're adapted. So what we're finding here, I'll give you a few results, is that when we leave these old trees, these migrated genotypes do better. They survive about 30% better. And so that just shows you like the connection. They need to, they need to be migrated into fairly healthy ecosystems with old trees to nurture them along. They can link into the networks of these old trees. They benefit from the shade, the protection, the, the, the community that already exists there that will bring them along. They're, they're migrants. They need to be brought into the community and embraced, um, just like in human communities. Forests are communities. I think no matter whether they're spontaneously arising or planted. I think they enable 
are communities and they are their own communities. And when we have these old trees there and these seedlings are doing better and there's natural regeneration, we also save the carbon pools. We also save biodiversity. But if we clear cut them, we lose. We lose so much. So that, that is what the project is about. It's a hundred year project. I'm the leader, but it's really run by the students. There's about 20 students actually out there in the forest today, doing all the little measurements of the soil, the forest floor, the trees, documenting everything. And, and they're, you know, they're the engines that are driving this forward. I think ecological knowledge is something that we've lost long ago and are just trying to reconstruct now. And we're, we're having to find out as our kind of basic understanding of what ecology is, is radically transforming. This trilogy of episodes opened with the forest made by design, that of photographer and ecologist Sebastião Salgado. His project was about restoring what was lost in his own hometown. It only made sense to end with another forest project by design, this one looking to negotiate how we can live together. The identity of forests, of bridging the non-human world to the human, with the creation of timber, is a profound, multi-layered process that reverberates across how we see and use not only the material, but fundamentally how we approach trees. And we have the knowledge to protect and advocate for these trees as architects. We're not passive actors in this. I hope this episode showed the in-between spaces, the in-between conversations, in which we can dwell in when it comes to trees and timber, and how that informs our architectural ecologies. Something that makes me optimistic is that nobody hates forests, right? I, <laughs> I mean, some people might have terrible allergies and things like that, but it's, it's, it's an absolute joy and pleasure being surrounded by trees. And that's something that's very, 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 very shared. Our systems are built as complex systems, and that means that they they heal, they regenerate, they, 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 they build, they're resilient. That's how, that's how, you know, natural systems just evolve that way. They evolve to work that way. That gives us a really good basis, groundwork on which to build. And the, the process of shifting to a more sort of regenerative environment for humans and non-humans alike is a, a reconnection with that joy rather than a starting from scratch. We have enough knowledge to do this in a way that is resilient and sustainable. We do have that knowledge. We can do this. We can leave old trees and still take out trees to harvest, to provide for our buildings and our, you know, our needs. But we need to be more careful about this, more knowledgeable, about it. not so exploitive. We've let exploitation govern our economic system, govern how we do it. And that doesn't, it's not going to work for us. We need to be holistic about this, understanding the ecosystems, the social needs and the economy as well all as one but there are definitely solutions out there we just need to implement them and be flexible and adapt we've heard different definitions of what ecological knowledge is and i've been reflecting on what it means for me throughout making this podcast and i think that ecological knowledge ultimately is a state of being it's an openness to embrace worlds that aren't human in order to live together through communities and disciplines out of our orbits. Ecological knowledge is indigenous knowledge. It's fundamentally holistic. It rejects colonial definitions. It has no distinction between us and the other. And ecological knowledge is generous. It's ever expanding. 
in terms of forests, what better teachers do we have than some of the oldest beings on this planet? You know, a tree is is this really crucial organism, but what humans have thought a tree is is something that has been kind of massively unstable and transformed in a really interesting way. Thank you for listening to AR Ecologies. You can find the link to this podcast transcript in the notes for this episode, or head to architectural-review.com for all the latest pieces uploaded to our website, including projects and essays featured in our AR October issue on trees. The AR depends on its subscribers to bring you fearless storytelling, independent critical voices, like the ones you hear in this podcast, and thought-provoking projects from around the world. Consider supporting the AR with a subscription today. Visit architectural-review.com forward slash subscriptions to find out more. Students receive 30% off.